0: We're going to see this morning just how beautiful the gospel is and how it leans into our life and keeps us on track, all right? Um, you may say, well, Todd, that's um, I know the gospel or I'm aware of it, but it is always good to be reminded of the gospel, always. Always good to preach it to ourselves and to others. In fact, Uh, We find this even in the life of Christ, where he reminded his disciples consistently of his mission, i.e. the gospel. And the third of those reminders is in Mark chapter 10. You might could say this, it's kind of like the same song, third verse to those guys, you know what I'm saying? Uh, They've heard it before, and they'll hear it again, and they'll keep preaching it once he uh, is resurrected in the sins. But they're just now kind of getting their hands around it and understanding it. And so he's consistently reminded them of his mission. We find the third of those in Mark 10, like I said. So take your Bibles. Locate Mark chapter 10 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 32. To get you up to speed to to verse 32, remember, he's been focusing on his disciples primarily. The crowds are still around. They're still in his view to some degree, but he's really... His face is set towards Jerusalem, and so he wants to make sure his closest followers know what's coming and are able to continue that mission once he leaves. And so his mind is actually more focused on his, on his cadre than the crowds will say. And that's kind of where we pick this up. He's reminding them yet again of why he's headed to Jerusalem. As I say, this is the third time, Mark 10, 32. The first one was in Acts, excuse me, Mark 8:31. And the second one's in Mark 9, 31. So kind of a good way to remember these three reminders. 8, 31, 9, 31, and then 10, about 33. But each time it's Christ giving more and more details about what he's going to do in Jerusalem. Here's the third of these reminders. begins in verse 32. I'll read. You follow with me. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, indicating a a determined uh, um, set of, 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 like, his facial expression, his bodily demeanor, was all just really set toward Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't uncommon for rabbis to be ahead of their followers in that day. But I think the next phrase tells us more about why in this moment he seemed to be extremely determined. Unstoppable, we may say. It says, they were amazed... And then others who were following were afraid. So there was something visibly different about Christ's focus in these moments. And so taking the 12, again, he began to tell them what was to happen. Perhaps he noticed that there were some who were amazed, some who were afraid. An explanation would be helpful. So here he gives, for the third time, his reasoning for going to Jerusalem. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. We don't know how long of a gap is between 34 and 35. I'm assuming it's not very long. It's probably in the same conversation, the same journey. And the sons of thunder, man, they show why they're called that, don't they? Look what they say next. On the heels of this third reminder about his mission, they say they're the sons of Zebedee, James and John. They're also known as the sons of thunder. They came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And I love the way Jesus here is so lovingly compassionate and patient. And so they answered his question in verse 37. They said to him, Grant to us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And the arrogance heightens. They said to him, We are able. And so Jesus then says to them, and he's thinking of a different cup and baptism, by the way, than they're thinking. They're thinking of the cup and baptism that goes with glory. Look back at verse 37, right? And he's thinking about the cup and baptism that goes with suffering. He says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And and that's a difficult phrase to explain. We just need to be able to say that even Christ showed submission to his Father's prerogative and omniscience in this appointment. Well, the other ten must have heard this. We're not sure which part of this got them worried. But they knew that James and John were asking for vice president, speaker of the House, secretary of state. They're trying to get the top two seats, right? They're thinking, oh, is the Father going to appoint those? Let's don't miss out on the appointment of cabinet positions. These guys got a head start. So something about this makes them indignant at James and John, verse 41 says, And so Jesus, in His loving, compassionate way, calls now all of them together. And He says to them in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles are lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's indicating that what you're asking for seems to have some kind of Gentile roots or pagan roots in it. Like your motivation isn't completely pure and and, and like the Son of Man's. He's saying you're acting more like where you came from than where you are. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Will you read that phrase with me? But it shall not be so among you. In other words, disciples, you won't lead like the world leads. The church that I'm going to use you to found The church about which you'll be the foundation of the you know the apostles and prophets the foundation of the church you're not going to lead that like the world leads it's it's an astounding call to church leaders we don't lead like the world leads the the world lords it over he says here that if you want to be great you must be a servant Verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Do you see the, the, the kind of, a, I'll use the word digression. In the world's economy, it would be that. You, you end up as a slave when you really want to be the top dog. That's what the world thinks. But in Christ's economy, he says, no, if you want to be great, then you, you, you become a table waiter. That's the word servant in 43. You become the, the deacon. And then you must be willing to even be the slave. That's the word doulos, the bond slave. So, in God's economy, you're not shooting for the top. You're actually aiming for the posture of lowly humility. Give me the towel. Give me the bucket of water. I'll wash the feet. That's how you're great in God's kingdom. And then verse 45 is what I say is the peak of this mountain that we're trekking on today. Here's one of the peaks in the book of Mark. And I think what may be the the two most important words in these 14 verses. Four even we'll get to it in a minute but what a beautiful set of words here for even i mean can you imagine being in that crowd and you're wanting the, the seat one and seat two and then he puts you in your place lovingly and then says and by the way if you think this is too much to ask this is what i've done i mean it's a moment of like the mic drop moment like oh if jesus did this who do we think we are Look at the verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Interesting set of verses, 14 of them, that show us something I think will help us as a church and as individuals kind of get our hands around our own ambition because what's happening here is you see the ambition of of James and John front and center, don't you? And how does Jesus kind of rein in their ambition appropriately? How does he rightly say, guys, it's okay to want to be great, but you, got to be, you want to be great in the right way, in the right sense of the word. How does he do that? I think he does that by bookending this conversation, this encounter, with two gospel reminders. This is the third of them. And here he's saying, guys, you've got to remember... The mission we're on, it's not to make sure you're great, it's to make sure that that we get to Jerusalem, that I die, I give my life as a ransom. That's the mission. And so I find that this is a really good way to kind of picture these 14 verses. You have the, the disciples' ambition, and yet it's kind of ambushed or sandwiched between two gospel reminders. You can say it like this. They were all about the theology of ruling, and he was more about the theology of suffering. They wanted the crown, but he wanted to make sure that they understood the cross. You kind of follow that? They're really really thinking about success, and he's making sure they think about serving. And the way he moves them them to think about serving is by sharing the gospel, by uh, showing his own life, which is the gospel personified. So let's take a look at these three um, areas for a moment, can we? Let's take a minute and just kind of look briefly at the ambition of the disciples because I don't personally think it's all bad in this passage. I want to show you three words that at least give me a sense that there's some, there's some real faith in these guys, all right? I mean, they get a bad rap. Can we just admit that I've probably done that to them at times, give them a bad rap. And there is some arrogance here. There is some presumption and there's some selfish ambition, but there's also some legitimate ambition and some real faith. Look at Verse 37. The last three words in the ESV. They're, yes, they're asking for positions that are top, you know, right hand, left hand, but they must know that there is something still to come because they say when you, when you come into your glory, in other words, they had faith that what he had said must be true. We believe you are the Messiah. We're depending on you to, to bring the kingdom. When your glory is here, we want to be part of that. Now, admittedly, it's arrogant, It's a little presumptuous, but do you see their faith in that? They just heard him talk about how he would be condemned and flogged and killed, and then he would rise again, and somewhere they believed him because they were banking that he would return in his glory, and they wanted to be part of that. So I want to give them a little credit here. There's some real positive faith in their heart. What I would say is just honest spiritual ambition, fervency, diligence, um, call it words like that. The problem is, it seems like their, their ambition's starting to take a, a wrong turn. It's becoming selfish ambition. You see that? Hey, we love what's going to happen. We believe you, your glory, your kingdom, and, and we want to be one and uh, two and three. Can't we do that? And I think this is something that a lot of Christians probably struggle with. I know that I do. It's not that you have ambition, it's that ambition can sometimes get selfish. This is what Paul warns against, by the way, in Philippians 2, 3. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Paul, through the Holy Spirit, does not condemn ambition. If you read Proverbs, you'll find that Solomon actually encourages people to work hard, to be industrious, to be creative. The Bible never condemns ambition. Isn't that good to know? God made us to work hard, to invent, to create to do a good job, to pursue excellence. But when that is turned to where the end result is always a spotlight on me, when it's just to make sure that, that I get the best end of the bargain at the end of the day, however you want to word that, then suddenly that ambition's um, gotten wings and it's taken off and it's selfish ambition. This is what happened, I believe, to Diotrephes in 3 John who well, I believe, if you read the context of that single chapter letter, John seems to describe someone who was very involved in the church and probably a servant of the church, but he, he turned his actions to where he, he wanted to make sure the attention was on him and he ended up with the preeminence. And so John warned that church against Diotrephes and said he loved to have the preeminence. In other words, he was ambitious and it seemed like it took a detour and it became selfish ambition. And so what clips the wings of selfish ambition, appropriately and necessarily. I think it's the gospel. Because we realize, wow, this is not anything that I'm inventing, I'm doing. This is all God. He's calling me into His work. I think that's what Jesus does here. He reminds them of the gospel in advance. Then they have this ambitious encounter where they're starting to take wings and get air unnecessarily. And then He reminds them of the gospel again. All to make sure their ambition stays, their fervency, their diligence, their their fire, but that it stays in the right road, we'll call it. I say it like this, that good ambition must be grounded by and founded upon gospel mission. Otherwise, it becomes greedy motivation. If you're curious about your own ambition, I would just encourage you to think this, this maybe simple kind of equation. At the end of the day, who ultimately benefits? And if it's only you, if everything you're up to and doing is just to make sure at the end of the day you benefit, I think that's selfish ambition. At the end of the day, if others benefit, that's just good ambition. So just use that maybe as a general filter. This is a very deep uh, conversation you probably ought to have. It's probably one that has a lot of... of um, tangents perhaps, ripples and arms. I mean, you're in a small group as a family. Talk about this. I, this is something I really struggle with. I struggle with ambition that goes awry sometimes. And I've been in environments, situations, not just in this church in 15 years, but prior to this church, I've been preaching over 30 years. I've been in environments where my ambition's gone awry. You can find yourself sometimes manipulating and leveraging. That's sinful. I've been in environments where it's been done to me. And things are kind of, and you'll manipulate it, and and you're just like, ah, this isn't. And you know what? You know what always arrests those situations and brings it back? It's the gospel. It enables forgiveness. It enables us to have the right perspective of what we're after. It enables, in the end, not just one person to feel like they benefited or they're at the top of the totem pole, but that the church in general, this is best for the church. So I just want to let you know, ambition is not the problem, but selfish ambition is. And the gospel is what roots out the selfishness of our ambition and keeps us appropriately fervent and yet also rightfully humble. And let's look at the two gospel bookends, can we? Here's these guys, very ambitious. Uh, their ambition is getting some wings and getting some air that's not necessarily healthy. How does the Lord reign them inappropriately? He does it by talking first about the gospel and its power to save us. This is the first bookend. It begins in verse 33, and again, you'll see that this is really the gospel just spelled out even before it occurred. Isn't that interesting? You have eight future tense verbs in verses 33 and 34. Here they are. Underline them in your Bible, would you? The Son of Man will be delivered. He will be condemned. He'll be uh, delivered again over to Gentiles. He'll be mocked, spit on, flogged, killed, and then raised. Eight future tense verbs that really succinctly Describe the gospel process, isn't it? This is the gospel in in sequential kind of time um, perspective. In other words, he was betrayed, handed over, and then falsely judged and condemned, and then given over to the Gentiles, who then mocked him, spit on him, flogged him, and crucified him. They murdered him. And yet these last three words... It says, after three days, he will rise. Isn't that great news? I love the way the gospel just is spelled out here. And this is given in advance. I don't know exactly what the disciples thought. But this is the the, the one of the reminders, you know, eight, nine, and 10. This is the one with the most details. This is the one that has the most um, information about what's going to happen. So I have a feeling that probably James and John were focused on the idea that he would rise because I got to thinking, wow, there is an after party We want to be part of that in your glory. So here's the gospel and this is the way God through Christ saves people. It's through the suffering and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now let me show you how this eight verb process is summed up. We're still on this first point but watch this. Jesus Christ at the end of this text he, he kind of summarizes this in the last part of 45. Look there with me. He says this is how I'm serving, I'm giving my life as a ransom for many. Do you see that? That's just those eight verbs all put into one simple phrase. When he was condemned, handed over, flogged, killed, spit on, and all those verbs, was raised. That's Christ giving his life as a ransom for many. And the word ransom, there's a beautiful word. It's not used a ton in the Bible. But it means a price is paid to release a slave or a captive. In other words, the the full amount that's owed is paid by somebody else. And then that person's free. And the Bible here says that Christ gave his life. So all the torture that led to death, that was the price he paid to free the captives, me and you. And the Bible here says that he did this for many. The word for there means instead of. In the place of. So, what you have here really is a great theological uh, nugget of substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ paying the price for the ones who were guilty. He was a ransom instead of many. Like Romans 5 one man's death justified many who would believe. Christ here is giving this prediction, this prophecy, this promise. Guys, listen, we're going to Jerusalem, not so we can set up thrones. You can have two and three and I'll be on one. We're going there to die. We're going to mount the cross because I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. It is the basis of our salvation. We say this sometimes. Because he served, we use air quotes, because serving here is actually referring to the eight verbs In the first part of this text the condemning the delivering the mocking the spitting the flogging that's how he served us he gave his life as a ransom so because he served i can be saved church i don't know everyone's spiritual condition but let me just encourage you let me exhort you let me strongly urge you do not trust anything else to save you only the life and death and resurrection of jesus christ He's the only one who could pay your debt. I would remind you, on a little more theological note here, that we were captives. We were held hostage, but we weren't held hostage by the devil. Jesus didn't pay the ransom to Satan. That's been said before, probably decades ago, maybe even close to 100 years, there was a theory out that Jesus kind of paid it to Satan and he let us go. And that's just ludicrous. We weren't under the wrath of Satan. We were under the wrath of God. We were enemies with God. Our sins separated us from God. And so when Jesus died on the cross and drank the cup of God's wrath, he was removing the wrath that was on us from God. Isn't this beautiful? That Jesus Christ paid every bit of your debt. That, by the way, you could never pay. Here's why. God is holy. He's infinite. You and I have sinned against a holy God, which means as an unholy, finite being, you'll, if you, you can't spend enough lifetimes in hell paying the price that a holy, infinite God demands. You can't. Which is why I believe hell is an eternal punishment for those who do not choose to believe. But when Jesus died, he was God, holy and perfect and infinite. He paid the price in three hours that you couldn't pay in a million lifetimes. So there is no way to be saved on your own or through someone else. It's only through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So do you wonder why we remind you of the gospel every week? Do you want to know why we... We sing about it and preach it while we make sure Christ is always lifted up. While we preach Christ crucified because he's the only way to be saved. Because He served, we can be saved. That's the first bookend. It kind of roots out the wrong kind of ambition. Guys, you didn't do this on your own. You're not as great as you think you are. And then he concludes this encounter with one more gospel bookend, one more Reminder. And it really involves serving. He warns them not to serve like the Gentiles or the pagan culture is what that refers to. But instead to serve like he served. One who takes the escalator down, we'll call it. Moving from thinking they're great in their own eyes to becoming the, the table waiter, then becoming the loss the, the bond slave. And I think the real key word in this whole narrative as I said before is Verse 45, for even. And he he lifts himself up, and and rightfully so, to say, guys, if I'm serving in this way, sacrificially, um, giving my life so that you can be saved, guess how you should serve in the same way? Sacrificially, humbly, without rights. We're not professionals, as John Piper says, right? We're simply slaves, And I I love verse 45. It's what I think is the key verse of the book. It's another mountain peak on this hike through the gospel. And Christ lifts himself up as the ultimate perfect example of, of how to serve. And so because he served in this way, watch this, we can serve in this way. It's the basis for our serving. So we say this, because he saves, I can serve. In other words, you're not dependent upon what other folks think of you, or your own ability, or your own power. You're not banking on lording it over people. Christ will empower you through his life and death to serve as he serves. So the church then, his followers, become this incredible army. Watch this. Not of people trying to gain power, but of people trying to serve in God's power. Do you see how the gospel here just really arrests their wrongful ambition, and yet it leaves intact God-given ambition, right kind of fervency. This is why we need reminded of the gospel regularly. To keep our selfish ambition in check, and yet to keep our, our motivation for living sacrificially and serving diligently appropriate. Now let me just pause here for a moment and say that if, if serving was such a a fundamental aspect of Christ's life. And we would say it is, right? I mean, here he said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. He called himself the Son of Man, hearkening back to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who would give his life for many. So, so if, if serving was so intricately woven into Christ's life, then it should be into his church. And this is the reason that within our own mission and strategy, the word serve has a very prominent place. I'll show you on the screen behind me, kind of some some real just some vision casting reminders again about First Family. You know, we exist in three areas primarily. First Family Church, First Family Extended, and First Family Global. We often say this, we swim in three seas, FFC, FFE, and FFC as an S-E-A-S. We swim in three oceans, three ponds. By the way, the outer circles really depend on the middle one doing well, and our giving, and our serving, and our Uh, unity just that needs to do well and so that's the primary one that we want to make sure we focus on and if it does well the the ripples do well and if it doesn't do well the ripples don't do well right within first family church there are three things we've said for for years that really comprise what we do we celebrate the gospel we grow in community and we serve the mission in fact we've used three main words for several years same with me celebrate grow and serve We've modified them in the last four, five, or six years with these other words, and so we say three things we do on a regular basis. Same with me. We celebrate the gospel, we grow in community, and we serve the mission. Notice the serve part. It's just really, it's just part of our DNA. And here's what we mean by serve, okay? I'll have you read this with me. Together? Using the gifts God gives us to further his mission builds our spiritual muscles, broadens our outreach, and molds us into the image of Christ. This is what we do as we serve. This is what happens when we serve, and this is why we serve. It's just part of our DNA. We serve, and notice what it says, we serve the mission. We don't serve your mission. We don't serve my mission. It's not selfish ambition, remember? It's humble servanthood because it's his mission. Now, when you see that, you say, well, Todd, you just make sure everybody's got a place to serve. You're just going to kind of make this a, a guilt... Uh, uh, plea here to get everybody on board? No. Because even this is fueled by the gospel. Because what's the first thing we say that we do on a regular weekly basis? We celebrate the gospel. So do you see how it's so important that we not fail to remind each other regularly, weekly, in our small groups, in our large gatherings, in our homes, in our devotions personally, about the gospel? And why Christ would remind his disciples here. The gospel fuels every bit of this. It needs to bookend our life. The gospel needs to surround us. And especially in regards to our ambition. The only tried and true way to keep ambition in check is to make sure it's hemmed in appropriately by the gospel. Otherwise, we begin to think we're greater than we really are. and It's all about us or it's our mission. None of that's true. He's great, it's His mission, and it's our privilege to serve Him like He served us. Can we just kind of sum this up? I know we went through a lot to get today pretty quickly. So again, like a, like a pretty good trek up this mountain. But here's how I'd probably say it to you in a single, simple sentence. And I would probably say to you that the, the first half of this sentence is really, could just, you could just take that and use that alone. I think that would work. But it's basically this, that the gospel is the basis for all of a disciple's life. Every bit of it is hinged to and tied to the gospel. More specifically, both our salvation and our service, they find their foundation in the good news of Jesus Christ, all right? And in this text, that's what you find. Christ saying to his disciples, guys, listen, I called you and saved you. I want you to serve me, but you won't find motivation for that or fulfillment for that in your own thinking, in the culture's paradigm. This is a paradox For you to be great, you've got to be a servant. You've got to be a slave. And so it's changing their thinking. It's flipping it upside down. It's turning the tables. And what makes that happen in someone's life and mine isn't my convincing or your convincing. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we see Christ in all of his priceless beauty laying down his life for us so that we could be saved that motivates and fuels and sets everything in its right perspective. So would you read this with me together? Here's our single take-home truth today. The gospel is the basis for all of a disciple's life. Both our salvation and service find their foundation in the good news of Jesus Christ. Now I want to provide you with three next steps that I think will help maybe launch you in living this out. I'll do this briefly. Here's three next steps for you. First of all, always remember whose mission it is. Say it with me. God's. Amen. Isn't that good, church? I mean, We don't come up with, with the mission. He's given it to us. His last words, in fact, should be our first concern. To go and make disciples of all nations. It's mentioned in every gospel. It's mentioned in the book of Acts. Multiplying and discipling is throughout the epistles. But it's even before that. In the Old Testament, God called His people to Himself and said, Be a light to the other nations. God's heart has always been about bringing others to Himself, which is why we say, we'll say it again today, God didn't give His church a mission. God gave His mission a church. It's not your mission. It's not my mission. When that happens, it becomes wrong, selfish ambition. It's God's mission, and we are called into that as His people. So remember whose mission it is, and that helps us maintain the lifestyle and posture of a servant. Number two, serve with God's power, not for human power. And all the people in the room said, what? Ouch. (laughs) It's hard to live this way, isn't it? And I don't know much about other countries. I've only been out of the country a handful of times, I think. But I know in America, it's just hard to swim against the current of, of leadership power, whether it's politically or in business, uh, athletics. I mean, competition is rampant. I don't think it's all bad, but but can I just admit to you, sometimes we find ourselves doing what we do to gain power so that we then can be in the best place for ourselves or or. And the Bible here says that the church's leaders especially, the church, the followers of Christ, are not to rule like the world rules. Are there principles that carry over? Are there things that are common? I'm sure there are. But at its motivation, we don't rule so that at the end of the day, we are better. We lead like servants so in the end of the day, God is glorified. The church is healthy. So we serve with God's power. And by the way, there is power in serving. There is supernatural power in serving. Let's not tone down what God promises. The Holy Spirit to those that believe in Him so that, that He can gift them supernaturally as He sees fit for the edification of the body, for the, for the evangelism of souls. Let's not tone that down. God gives supernatural power. Amen. But it's not so that, that you at the end of the day are seen as the high and mighty one. It's so that God is seen as the only one who can save. That his church is seen as the the instrument through which in our society there are disciples made over and over again. And so let's serve with God's power, not for human power. Thirdly, let's build on and under the gospel. Now, we normally say, and I think this is true in Christendom in general, build on the gospel. I've heard it said lots that the gospel is our foundation. And I agree with that, but can I just say to you that the gospel is not just the foundation, it's the walls, it's the roof it's the ceiling now the furniture may be different from culture to culture even generation to generation but the walls and the structure and the foundation the ceiling it's always the same it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the church would do well to realize that we should be surrounding ourselves with the good news that Jesus came he lived he suffered died and was raised And that right there sets the mission in place. How we serve and what we say, that sets it. So it's really, we build on it. We live under it. We're surrounded by it. And that's good news because that's our fuel for serving like Jesus did. We see his life. We know his news and we share that. So church, the gospel's not a springboard. On which you dive into oceans or dive into pools or dive into ponds of your own choosing, the gospel is actually the pool that we swim in. And the way to know the gospel and all that it entails is to go deep into it and to think about it, to ponder it, to meditate on it. That's why I say, I think it's very healthy to preach the gospel to yourself on a regular basis which means you probably ought to develop some succinct ways of saying it to yourself so that when your ambition begins to get off track, begins to get air, little wings, like, man, this is taking off and it's not healthy right now, you can appropriately clip those wings with just saying the gospel to yourself. Here's the four I like to use. God, man, Christ response. God is holy. I'm not. But Christ stood in for me. I want to respond to God based on Christ's work for me not my work for myself. That's the four I use. Same with, ready? God, man, Christ, response. Um, One author I read this week, he says, he likes the simple words, Jesus in my place. That's good, too. Maybe that's how you want to use those words. Uh, Travis uses one, I think this one he uses sometimes, I must, I can't, Jesus did. That's good, too, right? And you may have your own. Here's what I'm saying to you, though, that I think realizing that the gospel should surround you should develop some ways to always preach to yourself when you sense your ambition getting out of control or that you're wanting to use God for certain things. You find him more useful than beautiful. Man, clip those wings by just rehearsing the gospel to yourself and saying, God, surround me with the truth that were it not for Jesus, his life and death and resurrection, I'd have no hope and then serving his power on his mission. In essence, I tend to think it, it sh- the gospel should, should really be a lot like um, the Batcave. You're like, ah, where would you going with this, Todd, right? Remember in the first movie, I think it was called Batman Begins. The young Bruce Wayne stumbles across a well. It's covered over, I think. I think he falls in there. I'm not totally sure. But it's not until years later he comes back and this actual well is the beginning entrance of this incredible cavern known as what? The Batcave. And have you ever noticed that in the Batman movies, there's like 10,000 of them, in the Batman movies, everything begins in the Batcave and everything ends in the Batcave. Like when before the mission starts, he's in the Batcave getting resourced, getting knowledge, information. In other words, that's where it kind of all begins. This is incredibly you know, teched out place with everything he needs, right? He's sourced completely by the Batcave. And when things are over, he, you know, takes a nice car, drives back into the Batcave, you know, the earth opens, he drives in, and it all ends there. So in other words, there's no Batman without the Batcave. It's all sourced there. Everything starts and ends there. I got to think, you know, that, that's the gospel for us. There's a gospel cave where everything starts and everything ends. And we don't serve well at all if we're not starting there and ending there. In fact, we're only sourced out of the gospel cave. It's where everything we need exists. Christ's riches, his beauty, his power, it's all in the gospel. And so the more that we're around the gospel, the truth, these eight verbs, the truth that he gave his life as a ransom, the more we're just blanketed with that, immersed with that, the more we'll be sourced serve like Jesus so I just want to encourage you every day get to the gospel cave all right sounds a little cheesy but I'm pretty cheesy in general it works good for me and be sourced out of the very place that has all the motivation for every bit of serving God's calling you to do let's pray together we hope you enjoyed today's message For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.